You're listening to Reality Check, Sci-Fi London's podcast about all things science fiction and fantasy. I'm Alex Fitch, and in this show, I'm talking to the directors of two new fantasy films, which are looking at the possible effects of increasing computerization of our lives and contact with the afterlife. Later in the show, I'll be talking to Martin Gooch and some of the members of the cast of Death, a new British horror comedy which looks at the creation of an esoteric computer program which allows members of an estranged family to talk to their late patriarch, played by Leslie Phillips. Before that, I'm talking to Kareem Gray, the director of Zero One, a new and very prescient film considering the debate about remote drones in foreign warfare, as the plot of the movie concerns a military AI that at first becomes a friend for a slacker and his best friend living in a modern American city, but then things start to go wrong when the computer wants to escape the boundaries of their flat. A question that I asked another filmmaker a couple of days ago after their film, uh, another kind of almost apocalyptic movie that showed here, I asked was, um, do you consider yourself an optimist or a pessimist? Up until uh, the world isn't destroyed in that movie, I thought perhaps you were a pessimist because it does produce, uh, it does present a very plausible scenario of computers realizing how much a threat we are to ourselves and the possibility that wiping us out might be the best option. But then you actually present uh, the potential of a happy ending, which is kind of unexpected. Um, Do you find that there's too much negativity in science fiction in terms of humanity kind of outgrowing its uh, violence and so on? Right, and I played on the constant sci-fi trope, and I even called it out in the film, you know, there were certain pieces of dialogue um, when he referred to other movies where machines kind of get willy-nilly, right? And um, I said, you know what, I'm going to have someone step in to help us better ourselves as humans. But instead of a superhero like Superman or Batman or whatever the hero du jour is, um, I said, let's make it a computer that teaches a man to how to, how to be a hero. How to, how to realize his humanity to the fullest potential and then help defend it. And, and that's what the film, the film is about, and I hope you guys caught that. It's pretty much a superhero origin story. Um, the entire film could probably be about 20 minutes, and I'm glad you stayed for the whole thing. Um, but I, I wanted to exercise storytelling and try to give you a, a feasible payoff at the end. And uh, I'm, a, I'm an optimist, but I understand there's a lot of pessimism to... Uh, to wade through to get to that optim, that to that level of optimism, and I want to share that with you. What's your um, background as a as a filmmaker? Has science fiction always been something you wanted to work in, or did you start with more scenarios? <coughs> uh, it was all genre based. Um, um, my first film uh, was a comedy about a superhero that loses his powers and ends up in therapy, and how he has to deal with that. But it's actually a film within a film because there's a young filmmaker that's trying to pitch this idea, which is ludicrous because every time the, yeah, I've heard worse up here, so I'm gonna tell you, so every time the superhero trying to use his powers, he's end up masturbating in the power of teleportation and wind up in various places throughout the city. And the city was set up with him. And this is before Hancock, so I'm a little, I was a little pissed um, because, uh, because it was an idea that uh, many years before Hancock was my first film. And I was like, wow, people being pissed at a superhero, that sounds familiar. But uh, I got my start, um, went to film school, um, studied film at a very, very early on. I, I, this film was barely on the edge of outpacing my budget. And I don't have qualms about this. Our budget was about $30,000. Um, most people shoot shorts, 
for that amount. And we shot it in 18 days. And it was pages and pages of dialogue, not because there was a, it was a long film, but there were people talking very rapid, very dragnet style, back and forth. Um, the computer and Devin, uh, there was a lot of interaction. So there was about 128 pages. It's a 99 minute film, but it was 128 pages of dialogue. And we decided to record everything and then edit everything down to fit where it needed because we didn't want to miss anything because it was audio. And uh, so that was it. And um, did, I fit, did I forget a question? No. All right, and so my background is in, I've been into it for a while, and, um, uh, we, and uh, for what we did with this film, uh, this is proof of concept for a new series. That's basically what, we, what we're trying to do. Okay. Because everything, it's not, it's not what happens in the first uh, 90 minutes of the film. Um, it's what happens in the last five or 10 in the 18 month span, which can be expanded in the series or, or a webisode or even a, even a, a franchise film. And um, I, I pretty much wanted to create a new superhero, a new mythology, something that Hollywood is looking for. And uh, Hollywood is looking for, they're, they're, they're going backwards and looking into stuff that's already existed. They're digging through the bins of the comic book shop and trying to find the next great idea. And I said, well, I'll never have money to adapt it. Why don't I take the best elements of Star Wars, Luke's journey, the Matrix, uh, Neo's path to being the one, uh, Bruce Wayne perfect himself to be the Batman, Clark Kent discovering his powers and utilizing for the betterment of mankind. And the story, the trope goes on and on and on. It's the hero's journey. And um, well, particularly, I'd say over the last decade or so, this new kind of trope has entered in superhero comics where you have the benevolent di dictatorship, like the authority, where you have a bunch of superheroes who can actually stop wars by coming down and saying that they know better than us. And that's kind of the scenario you're presenting in this, that Zeros 3 through 11, under the control of Devon and his girlfriend, will perhaps be able to intervene in future wars in order to stop us wiping each other out. Right, and there's always a calculation of probability of how successful they're going to be. So they're at odds against the powers that be, and sometimes even the people, because the people don't understand. It's not like they're flying out and saving babies from trees, they're working covertly. So it's a mixture of, and I'm gonna be honest with you, I know this sounds crazy after seeing the film, but we've already, I've already worked out the mix. And it's Iron Man meets The Dark Knight meets 24. And now, I know that sounds crazy, but we're talking about elements. And uh, the tech, high technology element, because he's a supercomputer, he can pretty much do whatever he wants. So that's a mixture of Iron Man and The Dark Knight. And uh, 24, the intense political drama that I want to intervene. It's not about saving the, the disaster of the day, it's an ongoing arc that they have to prevent. And globally is what I really want to focus on, global issues, not just US issues. And it was interesting that you said that um, your previous superhero project uh, was a comedy, because it was just nice to have in this the lightness of touch with a lot of the dialogue that some of it was tongue-in-cheek, you know, the, the bromance between the two male leads, right. uh, which presumably is actually what led to Zero One making the mistake about his sexuality, because you see this, you know, intense friendship in so many films, and it seems to be completely verboten in most mainstream uh, American cinema to even suggest that there's something homoerotic about it. But you kind of right. put it out there and, and deal with it. Right, exactly. Um, uh, I, think, I think one of the things is uh, about what makes a human and relationships was something that kind of escapes zero one. Because relationships, really, in my opinion, it's what makes you happy. As long as you're not hurting anybody, as long as you're not, uh, you know, degrading someone or you're being a, a mean person, as long as what your love is doesn't affect anybody else physically, 
I don't see a problem with it. And I think that's a, that's a big issue in America. And, um, and then people always say, well, next question is, uh, well, uh, Kareem, are you gay? I'm like, no, no, not at all, not at all. But I am, a, I am African-American that has lived in, in the United States for all my life, and I don't have the right to discriminate against anyone, and that's my philosophy. And uh, I think it's a, a philosophy more people should have. I mean, if, if people want to get married, if, if, you're, uh, if you're gay or lesbian and you want to get married, come and join and be miserable like the rest of us. I said, let's, <laughs> let's make it happen. You know, it doesn't, shouldn't cause a problem. Um, does anyone in the audience have any questions uh, for the director? No questions, huh? Really? Debbie Shelley? No questions. Yep. Yes, sir. You know, uh, and uh, you had this in your film as well, usually like the villain in the movie, well, at least nowadays, w wants to remake the world into a utopia of their kind of uh, kind of own visioning. And in fact, mm -hmm. the one computer, uh, the system, mm -hmm. wants to do that by destroying, you know, 400 million people, right. whatever. So I, I guess, and you're talking about exploring this your series further, right? I mean, right. what do you think really makes the difference between someone, because the other computers also, in a sense, want to remake the world into a utopia. So what makes the difference between like a villain who wants to remake the world into a utopia, maybe like a, a Vite from Watchmen, right? Versus right. a versus a hero who wants to make the world a better place. Right. You know, I mean. I mean, it's a very complicated. I don't, I don't, I'm not even sure if I'm asking a question. No, you no. are, and you know what? I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna break it down for the audience really quickly. So what he's saying is, what's the difference between zero one and zero two? Um, why were they? Well, one wants to be a little bit more heavy-handed, another one's a little bit more passive. But what's really the difference? The difference is that zero one doesn't want to make that mistake. He wants his human barrier to help him keep himself in check, and and. Uh, he realizes that late in the film. Now, where it happens, I can't really tell you, but I think I know what happens when he makes that appeal. But has he already been copying himself? When he, did he already realize what his mandate was going to be as soon as Devin pulled that plug and know it's going to come down? Or did he just make that decision when Devin pled, pled, made his plea to him? You don't know. Right. So, so it's that human barrier that Zero One has. And I didn't, can't explore it all. This would be a two and a half hour movie. Independent two and a half hour movie. It would have been shot with a handy cam and paper. You know, we got paper missiles going, now here the missiles come, people. And, uh, you know, we wanted to avoid that. We, we squeeze as much as we can, could, into the film with our budget. And we understand it doesn't, you know, doesn't have all of the tropes and everything that we need. We didn't want, I really wanted that last sequence to be, oh my God, BSG. And I wanted then you know, I, I could pull off PlayStation 3 graphics. That was about all we could do. But it worked. It worked. It got the point across. Anyone else? No other questions? Yes, yes, sir. Sean, I remember you. <laughs> um, just one question, something you're definitely alluding to is the fact that a human being can't possibly unravel everything that's going on, and that you would need something as powerful as zero one to unravel the threats. Yes, because I think there are so many there are so many barriers in place to keep us uninformed as humans. Where we walk around in our in our smartphones and our head in the cloud and like uh, that's what the government's for. Or that's what, you know, that's what you know people that's what the doctor is for that's what anybody is to take care of us we're we're unwilling in this day and age to become apathetic towards one another and ourselves and the world around us and indifferent where we can't we can't we can't see the forest through the trees um we we just we we're caught in twitter we're caught in facebook and uh i i think we don't 
we don't do enough to find out the truth. Um, we kind of just like, well, if nobody's beating me up on the head and I get a paycheck every week, I think the world is good. And I'm guilty of it too. And well, it's obviously that. I mean, you know, we all believe that the internet will liberate us because we can look up any kind of form of information. But already there are gatekeepers on the internet that when you use Google, it bases what you think you want to look at based on what you previously looked at. So, yeah. you know, those sort of things were already in place to, to exactly. limit our experience to what algorithms think we want. Right, and, and in some instances, the, the, the danger is that when you're looking for the truth or you're trying to find out the truthful subject or something, trying to get to the bottom of something, you never will because your al the algorithms that are already in place are gonna say, no, you wanna buy this bag of chips or crisps. And you're like, no, I wanted to know about microchips that are implanted in human beings. No, you want some, uh, what do you call them? We call them ladies over in the States. Walkers, uh, walkers, yep. walkers. Is walkers, I wanna, no, you wanna, you, you don't mean microchips, you mean walkers. You know what I mean, things like that. Um, but I think my time is wrapping up here, unfortunately. So, but will he be in the bar for a while? Yeah, we'll be out here and uh, you know, um, any, any, anybody has ner is nervous, I, I enjoy feedback, and I'm not a, a narcissist. Um, I really do like valuable feedback, and tell me what you thought, and even if it's not good, we're here for this reason, to make ourselves better filmmakers, and to make ourselves, um, to get feedback from you, the audience, because that's what matters. And uh, like I said, this is proof of concept, believe it or not, and it's a sandbox that's ready to be opened, and many things can be changed to tell our story, but there's always gonna be a computer and a man. <laughs> well, I right, thank you. I appreciate it, and thank you everyone for coming out. I appreciate it. Next, I'm talking to director Martin Gooch about his film Death, which received its UK premiere at Sci-Fi London, the London International and Science Fiction Film Festival last year, and will hopefully be released on home format soon. Uh, I thought that was a really fun film. Um, I, was, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the genesis. Of the, of the script, where did the initial idea of doing a story about a machine that lets you communicate with the dead come from? Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's a weird way I ended up with this script. I'd, I'd written loads of scripts and tried to get them made, tried to get them made, nothing happened, fail, fail, fail. And I thought, I've got to write something that I know I can do. Yeah. I know we can do on the cheap. And I thought of all the things I could get. I knew I could get that house, I knew I could get this bunch of reprobates and uh, all these sorts of things uh, and I thought about when I was a little boy I went to see Clifton House which is near Maidenhead in the summer and I saw a ghost in the middle of the day and I thought that's fantastic seeing a ghost in the daytime it's not scary, it's not night time so it all came about from seeing a ghost and I worked with Leslie before uh, and uh, I thought you know I can't get him to run around in an action film mm. Uh, he's not up to that anymore, <laughs> but I can get him to stick his head inside a jar. And I thought, well, let's, let's do it with the magic of science and have a green screen and uh, post-production. And that's where it came from. I thought, how nice would it be to speak? Uh, I mean, personally, I had a year where five people only died all in a row, which is a bit annoying. And uh, I thought, I'd really like to talk to them and ask them things. So I thought, how nice would it be to make a telephone to speak to dead people? Mm. And he wasn't the only ghost uh, in the, uh, the film. We have him at the end. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Wayman. Uh, him at the end. David, I guess it's quite an unusual proposition for an actor that uh, you know that you're playing a ghost, but you don't want the audience to know. And 
I'm not sure when I would have twigged it, and unfortunately the lady sitting next to me in the back row went, oh, he's a ghost. Probably <laughs> about a minute before I would have worked it out, but it was that scene where it's the two of you in the cupboard, and it says, you know, on the door, uh, you know, Ella and uh, Tom's room. But I, I thought it was, um, you know, in, in the script it mentions uh, Sixth Sense, but it's something we don't actually see on film that often, and it seems to be something that you pulled off really well. Oh, thanks very much. Um, well, I'm used to talking to people and they're not listening to me, really. <laughs> so uh, it's quite easy in that respect. Um, but no, I think uh, most, of the, most of the clever parts of that were really in Martin's writing, so it's very easy to get away with, really. But did that make it difficult for the rest of you, um, having him in the room and then actually making a point of not reacting if he said a line uh, with a, a various takes that were slightly ruined because of that? <laughs> yes, it took a long time. <laughs> no, it's quite fun actually. Um, I, you know, he's very easy to ignore. What can I say? But um, yeah, it was it was very fun, and we did many many takes. But you were very nice, and you know, you bear with us. We were casting, and we just cast the person we didn't remember. That's all. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> True story is David turned up on the morning starting to shoot because unfortunately the chap that had been cast got terribly ill and so while we were already on set about to shoot our first picture film we didn't have a dead brother and so suddenly there's these spotlight photos of god knows all coming off the, of the um, printer and we went yeah he'll do when, she, <laughs> when uh, our producer showed us his photo um, and so they turned up having maybe been sent the script about 10 o'clock the night before, mm-hmm. and he was on the set the next morning and gave it a set in the very first morning, it's half past seven, I arrived there and I pick up my phone and there's about 120 missed calls saying, your, one of your lead cast isn't coming. Have you got any other ideas that you'd like to use? Um, so that was, that was one of those highlight moments, yeah. <laughs> I guess um, the location is pretty important uh, to the film. How long did you spend in the house finding different rooms and like the cupboards and the basement knowing oh this would be perfect for this scene and so on it's actually it's three different houses so yeah it's the the (coughs) exterior with the big crane shop is a private house to the west of of Basingstoke and the lounge and the kitchen are in that and the bedrooms and then dad's lab is a house which you can go and visit called Hammerwood House down near somewhere. East Grinstead. East Grinstead. And Led Zeppelin used to own it and they trashed it, which is <laughs> rock and roll and it's never been fixed after that. So I was like, this is awesome, we're filming it. And then uh, we had to pick up some little bits, so when Uncle Simon goes in and he takes a big portrait off the wall, I was around my friend's house around the corner and she had this dreadful painting I thought, oh god, oh god, that's awful. And I thought, that's exactly the sort of painting that Uncle Simon would like. So we came around and just filmed that scene in her, in her lounge as Louis said in his introduction um, there's also a very kind of British sense of humour at play as well in the script um, you have uh, satire on breakfast television you have satire about sort of celebrity culture um, how much work went into the script before you felt that you had a good balance between the humour aspects and the more sort of uh, serious and supernatural ones uh, I don't know um, uh, we, we, we wrote we, we saw, well I wanted to take this film and I knew what it was about but I hadn't written it so I wrote uh, five, four or five character profiles and then uh, Nikki, Genevieve, Ben and uh, the former 
uh, Tom, who's called Luke, we went into the um, uh, active rehearsal rooms and we cashed out five key scenes, which is the arrival of the house, meeting Uncle, uh, the granddad, the meeting dad and Tom at the airplane, we cashed out these things, filmed everything, I went away and I wrote like 48 pages of dialogue, pure dialogue, and then I went through the whole thing. Then we all went to the house, and we all stayed there for three or four days in November 2010, and we workshopped the entire film all the way through from the beginning to the end. And then we ended up with this film, uh, and then we shot it, and then when I did the first cut, it was two hours on. Mm. And I thought, okay, I've got to cut out 20 minutes to make it, you know, I decided to send it. And uh, the evil S word. And uh, so the decision was to cut out more of the humour mm. and uh, keep the mystery going. So we, we kept in all the mystery, and a lot of the, there's a whole lovely scene about a spork. Which has gone. <laughs> yes. And we love the sport scene, so it has to go. Yeah. It'll be on the DVD extras. Give me 20 quid now, and I'll promise you I'll send you a DVD. <laughs> so then, I guess for you guys, since uh, a lot of the dialogue was workshops, it meant you had to stay in character a lot and actually act as a family with all those little kind of animosities and relationships forming the dialogue as you went along. We were pretty much drinking throughout, which really helped. Um, no, it was really actually so nice to be involved in something at such a, an early level and just be able to work through it and work through it and work through it, get rid of things that didn't work, put new things in, and just spend that amount of time, night and day, in one place, just all together. Um, yeah, it was just a really beautiful thing to be involved in. And then that made it so much easier because we filmed it on such a tight schedule in the end. What, we did it in just over a week, the yeah. main bit at the main house which was really intense, but made it so much easier just to pull back into character and just be able to work and work and work. So. Yeah, um, I, I, uh, I have big thanks to the editors, because actually there's one scene I'm not in, which I'm in. <laughs> because because it was brilliant and I know because I was doing a play in the evening so any of the night shoots I couldn't be there so I was literally doing a play I was doing a play before the old line and literally the next morning I was coming to rehearse and doing that so it was like it was like a yo-yo it was mad but yeah it was great and, See, Colin should be there in the scene in the hangar. He should just be standing in the background, not saying anything. And then the, the scene after that, they go to the special tree, and Colin isn't there, but by the magic of cinema, ladies <laughs> By the magic of cinema, yes. Yeah. No, brilliant. It's, um, I'm very proud of it. And, uh, I think the, the easiest thing about the fact that we did film all so quickly, we were all staying on location, is that we were a big family. Um, I showed up at the 11th hour and uh, everyone adopted. Adopted. <laughs> yeah, but everyone that Martin knows fortunately is lovely so it was just very easy to slot in and, and have a lovely time with everyone yeah. <laughs> it was your impression that saved us <laughs> and I guess working as a kind of time scale did it make things like doing the fight scene uh, difficult because obviously you only have so many takes that you can do you know, within the budget and the, uh, and the shooting schedule. Let me tell you about the fight scene. Wow. Um, that actually was twice as long in the end edit originally. Um, and they couldn't. Really 18 yeah, well, they said we can't do that in because you'd be dead. Which I would be. Um, we finished filming that about half past two in the morning. Um, I did have a slight concussion, I will say. Um, but, you know, ever wonderful to be underneath Jerry for so long. It was great. I was going to body double. <laughs> All I have to say is I'm very easy on her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and obviously we have to thank Rob Hose. Yeah, yeah Rob Hose is quite cool. Mm. He's not here. Yeah. <laughs> Does anyone in the audience have any questions for the uh, director of cast? Yeah. 
Now's your chance. Yeah, the biplane. Tell me about the biplane. Ah, well, yeah. yeah. Well, the, the biplane. I'm a bit of a biplane fan, and I thought I can't make a film without a biplane in it. Uh, I did a film years ago with Mark Filmgate, who plays Keith TV, which has a biplane in it. He actually flies into the biplane and gets eviscerated. And that was a Tiger Moth, uh, 1939 Tiger Moth. This is a hot curry wok, and it's the only one in the world. There's two built, and the other one's in the shop. So it's the only one in the world. And uh, I knew the guy who owned it, so I phoned him up and said, can you use, can I use your phone? And he said, uh, use your phone. <laughs> <laughs> use your phone. Use your phone. And he said, I've sold it. And I said, are you joking? And so I said, can I have the name of the boat who you sold it to? So I phoned up him. And he said, yeah, I'd love, I'd love you to use my phone in the film. It's the only one. But the problem is, the, the, the drivers, obviously, the pilot sits in the second seat and the passengers in the first seat, the observer, have to be under eight stone. So I couldn't do it. So we had to get his daughter to body double off the plane. He was just over eight stone. So we had him taxiing along, but we couldn't take off from him because he's too heavy. Well, I was going to mention the biplane because with the film's hints of time travel and with British character actors, it kind of reminded me of the Biggles movie from the 80s yeah. with uh, Peter Cushing, Wilfred Hyde White. Was that intentional at all or just coincidental once you've got a biplane in a, in a movie like that? It's, it's very strange because Nigel Dixon played uh, Biggles in that film and I actually spoke to him about being in this film. Uh, but he was unavailable and uh, too much, so he didn't end up in the um, I think we're about to be thrown out. But if I could just. We have two more, keep them short, and you're going to drink. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll just get a sign of my sitting. If I could just ask about the music, it seems to be uh, a bit of a Vangelis vibe here, aren't There's a man sitting over there uh, called Simon Woodgate, who did all the score, and we battled. We battled long and hard because uh, before he came on board, I was trying to find someone to do uh, music and stuff. And I thought, well, I'm, you know, I really like these people. And I've and I just done a pop video for Claudia Brickham, who does the theme tune at the beginning. So she gave me that track. And I wrote to Roger Taylor from Queen. And he wrote back. And he said, uh, yeah, all right, you can have anything you want. So all that music that Simon didn't do is by Roger Taylor. And, uh, which is rather nice. He's not here tonight, though, ladies and gentlemen. Aww. But there you go, he's in New York. So, but that was cool. And I said to Simon, you know, we want something a little bit weird and a bit science fiction, and we sort of hit this Van Gersie thing, and, and the rest of it's his fault. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, man in the fourth row, you had a question? The art's fantastic. Tell us about that as well. <sighs> the art. The art. Where is the lost art? Uh, the art. Oh, the opening credits. Yeah, no, uh, I don't know any of you who are about my age which is, you know, like 25 or something like that. Um, the, uh, there was a book called The War of the Fire Top Mountain, Choose Your Own Adventure thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved it. And the artist, uh, Russ Nicholson, I thought, this is a brilliant excuse to get in touch with someone who I think is cool. So I wrote to him, and he wrote back and said, yeah, I'd love to do all your illustrations. So I sent him pictures, stills from the film, and he did all our, our lovely cast. And uh, he, was at, he was there on Saturday night at our cast and screening, and he was really impressed. So that was cool. Cool. Um, well, we've run out of time, but if you guys are going to be in the bath for a bit, maybe um, if you have any more questions, come and uh, buy these nice people a drink, and all uh, well, your dreams will come true. Um, I'd like to thank Martin and the cast. And, uh, for more information about death, please go to martingoochdirector.com. That's M A R T I N G. O-O-C-H, director.com. Martin is currently in pre-production for his new film, 
The Search for Simon, which is a new British black comedy sci-fi movie dealing with alien abduction. For more information about the film, to look at the director's video logs and get involved with the funding, please go to www.thesearchforsimon.com. Reality Check was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch and there'll be a new episode online shortly. Thanks for listening.